All right. I hope you had a great lunch, however you were able to enjoy it. Good conversation. And we have one more session with Danique, and then we'll have a Q&A. So if you have questions, go to the second Slido um, code. And so you can go to slido.com, but use the second code that's on, the, on your schedule. And without further ado, we'll go and have Janique start. Thank you. How was lunch? Good. <laughs> so we are going to pick up actually where I left off. I'm just going to go through two more uh, debunking some of the common myths with regard to the transgender issue. And then I'll jump right into the CRT and how it's linked to abortion. Remember when we were talking about what does it mean to be a woman, remember? Well, one of the things that I do want to make sure that we clarify is give you a proper definition in a world that pretends they don't know what it is. Although, I do think there are some people who are sadly, truly confused, but I do think we need to be armed with truth, and therefore we need to be able to give an adequate definition. Now, with my work with the Life Training Institute, I am an apologist, but in addition to that, I also am the executive director for the Missouri Family Foundation, and we are an organization where our whole goal is to advance faith, family, and freedom, and part of that, to advance faith, family, and freedom, we actually do a lot of affecting public policy. So that means sometimes, for example, we will work on bills such as Save Women's Sports. Almost every single state in the, probably if they haven't already, your state might end up trying to pass what's called a Save Women's Sports Bill. These are critically important, even though a lot of times people don't like to talk about politics, we have to remember that it is laws that either allow things to happen, they allow certain behaviors, or they restrict certain behavior, such as parental rights. Now, one of the issues that has come up, if you recall on one of the slides I had right here, was, let me find it, it was with um, Leah Thomas, and when people say, should men who identify as women or as a woman be able to compete in women's sports? Now, this is not a small issue. The reality is sports have always been divided by sex, and there's a reason why. Men are not the same thing as women. Our bodies were made by design to be very different. That is not a bad thing. But when we look at sports categories, they have always been divided by our biology. They have not been divided by our psychology, by what we think. So therefore, when someone says, well, I just think that someone should be able to compete on whatever team they want, we need to ask them some questions. And so I get this all the time when people say, but I think that kids who transition should be able to compete with their chosen gender. Well, again, here's what I want us to do then. We need to define properly because we see this happening more with men wanting to compete as women. What is a woman? So here is a definition that you can use. This is exactly what we used. I actually called my state elected officials, met with them, and they asked, can you give us a definition? So right here, I've actually provided the exact wording that we submitted on the bill. So first and foremost, a girl is prepubescent biological female. A woman is a biological adult female. Now, what is a female then? A female, because <laughs> you have to be very literal, you have to literally <laughs> define everything. A female is a member of the human species whose biological chromosomal makeup is determined by the XX chromosome for women, which is different than the XY for males. Now, this is part of the legislation or the wording for the legislation for the Save Women's Sports Bill that I submitted. Biological sex means the biological indication of male and female in the context of reproductive potential or capacity such as sex chromosomes, naturally occurring sex hormones, gonads and non-ambiguous internal and external genitalia present at birth, 
here it is, without regard to an individual's psychological chosen or subjective experience of gender. That removes any confusion. It removes all confusion. Now, I do encourage you to take a picture of that just in case you do need it because things like this are coming up more and more often where we do need to have a correct and accurate description and definition of what it means to be a woman, but also what is biological sex. Now, this is actually also confirmed with, are you all familiar with the Alliance Defending Freedom? Yes, so they're actually the attorneys that we actually work with. So Alliance Defending Freedom uses this also with legislation. And then focus on the families. They also have family policy centers across the United States. And every single one of the state family policy centers, just like us, are using the exact same definition. So this is what's actually going to be passed in legislation in different states. And so it is important. Now, the other aspect to this is mom and dad, if you're out of school, it's imperative that you make sure you know not only the curriculum that's being used, but you also need to understand, even at the university level, I've actually been in contact with several universities that have reached out to me saying, listen, our daughter is at a Christian school, and now there's a young man who identifies as a woman who wants to actually room with her and be on that floor. Now, here's what we have to think about that. I mean, it actually is a very serious thing because depending on the university, most of them do not have, like, private bathrooms. But that means she's now going to room with a male. And furthermore, depending on the floor, I know, for example, at one that I did visit, they actually have, it's like open showers. So that means he would be showering with women. So even though you love that individual, we do have to ask ourselves, well, wait a minute. Is this appropriate to force young women now to have to shower with a male because he identifies as a woman? So you can love someone. You can still love that individual, but say, no, we actually do have guidelines about we do need to refer back to what is true, what is a woman, what is biological sex. Now, the next one, then, is when people say to me, but, yeah, but, you know, sex is really nothing more than just genitals. Really? Interesting. I do want us to refer, then, to biology. This is where the science comes in. When people say that science is nothing more than just genitals, you do have to go back to science. Science demonstrates that there are two sex chromosomes, two XX chromosomes in females, and why? But they're present in nearly every single cell in our body. See, a lot of times people don't realize that. The sex cells are in every single cell in our body. It's not just our genitals. But furthermore, we also do know that when you look at the science of reproductive medicine, are there advantages that male bodies have over females when it comes to sports? Well, there is. According to biologists, now this is biologists and even scientists who are secular, will admit that there is a concept in biology called sexual dimorphism. Sexual dimorphism, if you remember from perhaps high school, is the concept and the truth that sexes of the same species exhibit different characteristics, particularly characteristics that are not directly related to just reproduction. That means it's other parts of your body as well. Differences can include secondary sex characteristics such as size, weight, color, markings, um, behavioral, or even cognitive traits. Now, here's where it comes down to in sports. Even, and then again, this is across the board, if you actually speak with a lot of the scientists and those who are actual biologists will admit that even when it comes to the heart muscle, lung capacity, all of these things can be and are influenced by our sex. The strongest 10% of females can only beat the bottom 10% of men in hand grip tests. Now, again, that's, so that's dealing with strength. Men are faster than women in running, swimming, rowing, kayaking, and short distance and long distance Women's speed 
world records are all about 90% of their men's speed world records. Each year, hundreds of men easily beat the world's best time in the women's marathons. When it comes to shoulders and other parts of the body, men have broader shoulders, larger feet, and hands, all of which give them an advantage in sports such as volleyball, swimming, and basketball. What about when it comes to running? Male marathon runners have lower body fat percentages than female marathon runners, and men have a greater amount of what's called fast twitch muscle fibers, which does give them more explosive power. On average, men are physically stronger than women. Men have 66% more upper body muscle than women and 50% more lower body muscle. But look at where it comes to the heart down below. Men have larger hearts and lungs, and that means they can pump more blood to the body, and larger lungs allow for the body's tissue to receive more oxygen. There is a 10% performance gap between male and female athletes in most sports, and it hasn't narrowed. Even though women might train harder, that has not changed. Men have bigger and stronger bones. Skeletal, a larger skeletal structure means men's bodies can hold more muscle, and larger bones mean they have more leverage. Men have higher A1Cs or hemoglobin levels, allowing their bodies to oxygenate muscles more quickly and efficiently. Men are taller, giving them an advantage in sports like basketball and volleyball. Now, just because you take hormones does, is not going to change that. Think about the heart and the lungs. If you take hormones, that's not going to change that aspect. So that's why we do have to consider that. Now, what about when people say, and this is the last one before I'll switch over, without sex reassignment operations, kids with gender dysphoria are more likely to commit suicide. Well, according to Dr. Paul McHugh, is actually who I'm going to refer to, Dr. Paul McHugh. But how do we respond to this? I do recommend that, number one, we do have to ask the question, do we trust our feelings over biology? Can our feelings change or even be wrong? But we also have to use facts and data from scientific studies. Now, fact, sex reassignment it does not work the way most people are conditioned to think, meaning no matter how much surgery a person undergoes, for example, take Bruce Jenner, Bruce Jenner is not a woman, even though he might refer to himself as Caitlin, he is still biologically a male. Now, outwardly, he might look that way, but if you actually refer to and actually speak with doctors or surgeons, they will admit that it's impossible to truly reassign someone's sex physically, and attempting to do so doesn't produce good outcomes psychosocially. Dr. Paul McHugh, okay, from John Hopkins University School of Medicine, he was their chief psychiatrist. He said transgendered men do not become women, nor do transgendered women become men. All, he said, including Bruce Jenner, become feminized men or masculinized women, counterfeits or impersonators of the sex with which they identify. In that lies their problematic future. And if you actually listen to Dr. Paul McHugh and even some peers that have also left that behind, they were all doing the what they would refer to as sex change operations or transitional surgeries, and many of them stopped. Because what they found is that even the most thorough follow-up of sex reassigned people, which was over 30 years in Sweden. Now, this is important. Sweden is not a so-called Christian nation. So they are very open, okay? They're a culture that's very open to all kinds of things. What they found was that 10 to 15 years after surgical reassignment, the suicide rate of those who had undergone sex reassignment surgery, it rose to 20 times that of their comparable peers. So that means even after having that surgery, when they followed up with them, it's called a longitudinal study, 10 to 15 years later, they were still unhappy because the issue was not what they thought it was. They thought, oh, this will just make me happy. This will fix everything. But it's not an issue with genitals. Okay, we know that it's not a biology issue as much as it is a psychology issue. Now, the other thing, how many of you are familiar with the term desister? Yes. So those that desist, meaning even if they were feeling a certain way, if they had those thoughts, those desires, 
or they were what we would refer to as gender confused, gender dysphoric. Left alone, what they actually found, and again, Dr. Paul McHugh, the professor of psychiatry, again, at John Hopkins University, in a tracking study where they followed up with them who reported, children who reported transgender feelings, but received no intervention between 80 to 95% of them completely desisted in their gender dysphoria, becoming comfortable in their biological sex. Now, according to Dr. Paul McHugh and his peers, he says this debunks the idea that it's necessary to psychologically and medically steer kids toward transition who exhibit gender non-conforming traits or who imagine themselves as being the opposite sex. So if there is no intervention, some studies actually reflect that number is as high as almost 98%. If we will get out of the way and if society, sometimes it's the schools that are doing what's called social transitioning and sometimes they can override parental rights and can transition your child without the parental consent or knowledge. But if they would get out of the way and allow what I believe is really God to deal with that person over time, when they mature around the age of 24 to 28 is when most of the studies reflect at this point, they no longer have those same desires. But I think we're intervening too early. When we intervene like that and now just transition them, then it does create problems. So just the key takeaways here, if our feelings don't determine reality, in any other area of our life, then why should our feelings determine our sex, or in this case, gender? If there's no clear definition of a man or a woman, then it's not possible to really feel like a woman. And lastly, words matter. We know they convey ideas, truth, or even lies. And even when it comes to pronouns, pronouns are objective, and they convey a specific meaning. They're intended to convey truth, not fantasy. Now, with that said, I will now transition into as we talk about critical race theory. How many of you are familiar with critical race theory and its concepts? Okay, how many of you kind of think it's confusing? I know we're all on the same page. Because <laughs> I think it actually, that's the one thing that's sad is that it, there is a lot of confusion. So as we talk about truths that transform, my goal would be for us to consider, is it possible that at one point in, in history, people were hurt because of the color of their skin. But is it possible for people to hold on to something and never allow healing to take place? Never allow for forgiveness. I actually want to start off with a verse from Colossians that says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we're to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances we may have against one another. Why? We're to forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds us all together in perfect unity. You see, CRT is not in pursuit of unity. And if that really is our goal, then we have to ask ourselves, how are we here? And are we advocating for something that sounds great, but it's actually void of biblical justice and biblical unity? That's the question we need to ask. But you see, part of this is dealing with truths that transform. Sadly, as you're going to see, there is a concept called intersectionality. And intersectionality advocates for many things, one of which is not only the LGBTQ, but they also advocate for abortion, which we're going to look at. But to create or to bring in some clarity on the issue, I kind of want us to consider what is the current state of America right now? You see, what I believe with the prevalence of critical race theory. I believe that we've gone from what looks like the United States of America to the divided states of America, where everything is all about being black or white, 
You see, growing up in Europe, true story. If my family was here, they would absolutely agree, because we still talk about it as a family. The entire time that we grew up in Europe, whether it was Germany, the United Kingdom, Liechtenstein, Belgium, France, no matter where we were, we never thought about the color of our skin as being problematic. It just never came up. Never. Not once. Then we moved to America, and we're like, oh, my word, are we in Colorado? Because I feel like everybody's high on drugs. Because it's like, what in the world is going on? Where everything is about the color of people's skin. But I want us then to assess and break down what are some of the main core ideas behind critical race theory and why they're unbiblical and destructive. Number one, and I've kind of simplified these. Number one, CRT asserts that the most important thing about you, what determines your identity, is your skin color. That means they're saying the most important thing about you, the defining characteristic, is the color of your skin. And in fact, because of the worldview that's behind CRT with Marxism, they divide people into two classes. You're either the oppressor or you are the oppressed. It's the modern proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. But instead of that, now they have the oppressed and the oppressor. It's the white oppressor versus the different minorities. But when you divide people into categories like that, where you are now assuming a condition, you're assuming something about someone. Based upon the color of their skin, CRT is saying, I'm going to assume the worst about you. I'm assuming that your heart is racist. That should be problematic, in my opinion, to every single one of us, that someone would honestly look at you and assume the worst about you. We know that certainly is not biblical. First Samuel says, man looks at the, what? Outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the yeah, that's not, okay, right? CRT is looking at the heart and assuming the worst. They're looking at the outward appearance and assuming that you're automatically racist and that you're going to oppress people if you are white. Furthermore, it says that if you are a person of color, if you're a minority in any capacity, you are in a permanent class of victim. Gee, that's empowering, right? <laughs> CRT asserts that racism, listen, this is crazy to me, this one right here. CRT asserts that racism is permanent and ever-present, exposing whiteness and white supremacy is what they believe. But the key word there, as you're going to see, they believe that it's permanent and that is an ever-present it's an ever-present force that we're dealing with, that in any situation, in every situation, a white person is always racism, is always racist. Somewhere, racism is present. Now, they don't believe that a person of color can actually be racist, so it's always going to be a white person who is racist towards a minority. Number three, CRT trades objective truth for subjective opinions and feelings. Remember, we went through objective versus subjective truth earlier. Well, they don't believe in objective truth. They only think it's all about feelings. Whatever your feelings are, specifically whatever feelings a minority individual has, never mind what actually is going on. If that person believes that racism was present, then it was. CRT, and number four, this is the big one, CRT requires acceptance and liberation of all oppressed groups. That concept is called intersectionality. And as you will see, intersectionality means, it means that we have to liberate all oppressed groups, which includes those who are LGBTQ. It includes, even when it comes to abortion, we need to advance abortion rights. But you see, part of critical race theory's understanding 
that critical race theory came out of what was called critical theory from the Frankfurt School. And then you have Kimberly Crenshaw actually coined the term, and initially it was a legal terminology. And I think initially it was perhaps necessary, or under, I believe we can understand why they started looking at critical race theory. Initially what happened they were looking at, after the end of segregation, let's kind of think through this for a moment. If today abortion's legal, tomorrow Roe v. Wade is overturned and it's no longer legal. Our attitudes, yes, we pray that happens, right, in the name of Jesus Christ, please. If that were to happen, though, would people's attitudes automatically change overnight? No. So let's go back in history. We know there were times, obviously, slavery. We know there were times of segregation, Jim Crow, all kinds of discrimination that did occur. No one is denying that. Think about when segregation, however, ended. Did that automatically change people's hearts? No, in fact, that residual mindset did exist sometimes for many years because how many of you know uh, people who are senior citizens or elder, more mature than us, who will say, oh, you know, in my day, and they will give you an example of something, and you're like, oh, my word, that was, like, so racist, <laughs> right? <laughs> We've all heard some stories like that where you're like, wow, okay. Um, in fact, yeah, I won't even go into that story, but <laughs> sometimes, and it's not because they're meaning to, it's because the way they were raised at that time, there was segregation, correct? Yes, but... We fast forward, now those laws, it's illegal, but it doesn't mean that everyone's heart was changed, especially when you were raised a certain way. So initially, critical race theory was examining from a legal perspective what was the leftover effect of some of the racist laws, like in the redlining districts, where they would hinder people from getting home loans. They looked at what are some of the lingering effects of racist laws that now are no longer in existence, but the attitudes are still there. So that's how it began. I think we all understand why that might have been necessary. But then things changed, and it went from being an academic legal issue to now it was in the military. It now is in education. And not just at the academic level, in schools as well, where now they're just looking at, they believe that it's in every single situation. If you turn on the news and there is a shooting, and that police officer happens to be what color, and the victim happens to be what, what is the automatic assumption? Ding. But does it mean that automatically there was racism present? No, but that is the assumption that's made. And to be honest, I think we need to be concerned if every single time something bad happens, we automatically jump to the conclusion that racism was automatically involved. That isn't biblical. For us to automatically assume something, whatever happened to be pursuing Whatever happened to the idea of us pursuing truth? And to me, the only way to do that is for us to actually ask questions. Well, wait a minute. Before we jump to a conclusion, before you change your Facebook profile and change, you know, they change and put these little filters on it, just stop and hold on. Say, let me examine the evidence. I'm not going to do anything or say anything until I see all of the evidence. And sometimes, my friends, that can take three to four months. But sometimes... The most loving thing we can do is wait before we say something, especially in a world that is hypersensitive and is always looking for racism to be ever-present. Now, according to Robin D'Angelo, how many of you are familiar with the book White Fragility? Robin D'Angelo is one of the premier authors 
of a book called White Fragility. She herself being white, she argues, all whites are racist. All whites, all white people are racist. And this is from her colleague, Barbara. But she says all white people are racist or complicit by virtue of benefiting from privileges that are not something they can voluntarily renounce. But here's what Beverly says. White people raised in Western society are conditioned into a white supremacist worldview because it's the bedrock of our society and its institutions. So entering the conversation with this understanding is freeing because, here it is, it allows us to focus on how rather than if our racism is manifest. It assumes racism is automatically present. She says whiteness is inherently racist, just to be white. A positive white identity is an impossible goal, she says. White identity is inherently racist. White people do not exist out of a system of white supremacy. So she says, I strive to be less white. To be less white is to be less racially oppressive. I can build a wide range of authentic and sustained relationships across race and accept that I have racist patterns. Interesting. Here's what I find very interesting in this statement. I strive to be less white. I'm like, what does she do, tan or something? Like, what does that mean? I strive to be less white. Because guess what? Just like our sex is an immutable characteristic, so is your ethnicity. So how is she less white is the first thing that I always think of. I'm like, okay, lady, but we're just going to pray for you. Um, but she also says, now, she might truly have had racist patterns. I don't know. And so if she really did have racist patterns, then maybe it is true that she is acknowledging that she does have racist ideas. My problem is assuming automatically that every single person who happens to have white skin or paler skin is automatically racist because I do not believe that is the case. I believe some people... And I believe that any person of any ethnicity or nationality has that possibility. But I don't believe that we automatically assume that about people. Ijuomo Oluo from the book, So You Want to Talk About Racism, says, if you are white in a white supremacist society, you are racist. If you are male in a patriarchy, you are sexist. If you are able-bodied, then you are ableist. If you are anything above poverty in a capitalist society, you are a classist. You can sometimes be all of those things at once. Now, here's the concept of intersectionality. With one of the authors of, he is probably right now the most sought-after critical race theory speaker. His name is Ibram X. Kendi. Now. He actually, just recently, he had signed an agreement with Netflix to produce a show about uh, how to be an anti-racist baby or something like really crazy. And we found out, like just as of yesterday, they announced that they're not going to produce that movie. I'm like, yes, thank you, Lord. Because think about that. That's very disturbing to me that not only does he write all these books, but he believes that you indoctrinate even little kids with some of this ideology. But he says intersectionality requires us to dismiss a biblical view of sex and gender as part of being anti-racist. Now let's think through that. You see, think of an intersection where our paths meet, where they cross essentially. It isn't just the white versus the minorities. Where we intersect is maybe it's gender, so female, male. It's sexuality. The heterosexual, in their mind, is the oppressed group or the oppressor. The oppressed group are the LGBTQ individuals. If you are able-bodied, and you have no disabilities, then you are 
in the oppressor group. If you are somehow disabled or different abled, then you are in the oppressed group. So here's what he says. We must accept, oh, and one more, if you are Christian, then we're automatically the oppressor. If you are any other religion, or if you consider yourself to be agnostic or atheist, then you are part of the oppressed group. So here's what he says. We must accept the premise that the other majority, white-based isms or idies, such as racism, heteronormism, Christianity, are the result of oppressor-based systems, and they must be dismantled simultaneously. He says, to be anti-racist is to be feminist. To be truly feminist is to be anti-racist. He says, we cannot be anti-racist if we are homophobic or transphobic. To be queer anti-racist is to understand the privileges of my cisgender, of my masculinity, of my heterosexuality, and of their intersections. Now, a lot of times people will say to me, yes, but miss, when we talk about CRT, I can promise you that CRT is not in my child's school. But a lot of times, what they don't realize is that CRT uses or goes underneath euphemisms. The first one being culturally responsive teaching, CRT as in culturally responsive teaching, not critical race theory. Sometimes it's called DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Social justice and activism training, which a lot of schools use that one. And any program that focuses on equity, inclusion, and intersectionality. Now, equity is the new word. It's replaced, what other word was used before? Equality. No longer is it about equal opportunity. Now it's about equal outcome. Even if that means you have to discriminate against other people to achieve the outcome. Now, this is from the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History. Look at what they have about assumptions of whiteness or white culture. We're going to start with the second one, family structure. They believe that the nuclear family and advocating for a father to be in the home is a white concept. That the husband being the breadwinner and being the head of the household is whiteness. The wife being the homemaker and being subordinate to the husband is also aspects of white culture and whiteness. Children having their own room, okay, and being independent is whiteness. Even emphasis using objective, rational, linear thinking, cause and effect relationships, quantitative emphasis or analysis also considered aspects of white culture. History. Based on Northern European immigrants experience in the United States, heavy focus on the British Empire, the primacy of Western and Judeo-Christian tradition is considered to be whiteness, and they believe very discriminatory. Well, look at this top one here, having a, a work ethic, a Protestant, what they refer to as a Protestant work ethic, hard work being the key to success. They believe that is racist. Um, working before you play which makes a lot of sense, but okay. Um, they believe that that is, again, features of whiteness. And if you didn't meet your goals, then you didn't work hard enough, okay? So religion, Christianity being the norm, anything other than Judeo-Christian tradition being foreign, no tolerance or deviation from single God concept. They believe that that is, again, a product of whiteness and white supremacy in the United States. Um, even when it comes to time, following rigid time schedules, time viewed as a commodity, they think that that, again, is a reflection of whiteness. And what about this one? When they say that for holidays, holidays reflecting Christian religions, they believe that's based on white history and white male leaders. I find that very disconcerting that this is actually in the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History. And so kids are coming through there on a consistent basis, and this is what they're being taught. Now, 
What about in schools across the country? Critical race theory and its impact on teachers. Springfield, Missouri. I actually live in Missouri, about three and a half hours from Springfield. A middle school forced teachers to find themselves on an oppression matrix, claiming that white, heterosexual Protestant males are inherently oppressors and must atone for their covert white supremacy. San Diego accused white teachers of being colonizers on stolen Native American land and told them you are racist, you are upholding racist ideas, structures, and policies. They recommend that the teachers undergo anti-racist therapy. Seattle, Washington, not too far. <laughs> A school district told white teachers that they are guilty of spirit murder against black children and must bankrupt their privilege in acknowledgement of their thief inheritance. Now, how far is Seattle from here? babies. The Arizona Department of Education created an equity toolkit that was sent to parents that claimed babies show the first signs of racism at three months old and that white children become full racist, strongly biased in favor of whiteness by the age of five. Sadly, this has become so accepted even within churches. What Alisa was talking about with the progressive church, this CRT is also part of that. A lot of them are adopting this mindset. I know someone, I think, in one of the Q&A had asked about um, Beth Moore. And one of the tweets that she had tweeted a while back was, I am decolonizing myself of my whiteness. Well, I don't know what that means. How do you honestly decolonize yourself of that? That doesn't really make any sense to me. But going back to this intersectionality, it requires us again to dismiss a biblical view of sexuality and gender, all of that. It, it requires us to because what critical race theory is saying, our goal, number one, we put people into categories of the oppressor and the oppressed. So because there is a group that is oppressing another one, we have to find a solution. For them, the solution is let's overthrow that. Let's overthrow and regain, try and reclaim power is essentially their goal by any means necessary. But part of it too, though, is to overthrow and free all oppressed groups, which does include then that that means partnering in advocacy for all LGBTQ plus rights. It also is about advocating for the feminist movement specifically, not the early feminist movement like with, with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but the second and third wave which is very pro-abortion. And so again, when he says to be truly anti-racist is to be feminist. To be truly feminist is to be anti-racist. To be anti-racist is to be pro-choice. That's Ibram X. Kendi. Now he believes, and we're going to look at four points here, of how CRT through intersectionality is advocating for abortion even at the legal level. Abortion, they believe, is required for equality and equity. What do they mean by this? Well, number one, he says to be anti-racist is to be pro-choice. He says being pro-life is whiteness that needs to be overthrown. So they automatically assume that anyone that is pro-life happens to be what color? And what color am I? Okay. But that whole <laughs> mindset, that idea is troubling because, again, the assumption is that based on the color of your skin, I'm assuming a set of values about you. The patriarchy, they believe, controls and oppresses women's bodies. But I will say this, though, going back to that last point, that being pro-life is whiteness that needs to be overthrown, this was actually 
even at that Smithsonian African American Institute. The black educators actually support that idea. So that means they're telling the students that to be pro-life is a white value. So it does create hostility, I think, with certain groups that go there. The patriarchy, they believe, controls and oppresses women's bodies. They believe that men can be completely promiscuous without worry of pregnancy. Now, they themselves cannot get pregnant, but it doesn't mean that they can't impregnate someone. And legally, who is financially responsible for that child until they turn 18? Mm -hmm, the male. We also know, according to them, they believe that men will never know clearly what it's like to give birth, of course. Um, they believe that women need abortion then to be equal to men. They also believe, furthermore, that black women need abortion to attain equity with whites to have an equal outcome. They also believe that unplanned pregnancies among black women are because of racism. Now, the first time that I actually heard this, when I spoke at a university, I said, well, what do you mean? I'm like, are you suggesting then that, like, like, what do you mean by that? Because that's a very loaded statement. Like, what do you mean? They believe, now, number one, they really couldn't explain it, but what I did seem to gather or glean from it, essentially, is that they believe that because of racism, many black women or minority women are not as economically advantaged as others. But when we actually think about this, though, what does someone's economic status have to do with whether or not they choose to be promiscuous? Your sexual choices, you choosing to have intercourse with someone, has nothing to do with your economic status. It doesn't. That is called poor decision-making. That means, because, I mean, sometimes we just have to be very direct and blunt, and people might not like it, but we have to ask, wait a minute, is there any truth to what someone is saying? When I'm speaking at universities, students are always like, like, about to have a conniption because you say this. But the reality is this. If we're being honest, going back to the science of embryology, how many of you have ever heard married couples say, we're trying to have a baby? What are they having lots of? And it's not vegetable soup. What are they having lots of? Sex. If college students are having lots of sex, what do we expect to happen? It's called intercourse is baby-making behavior. If you don't want a baby, then don't engage in baby-making activity. It's just that simple. That has nothing to do with the color of someone's skin because sperm and egg and the whole intercourse experience behaves the same in every human being. So when people use the ideology, we kind of have to get them to think, well, wait a minute, nope. The high pregnancy rates in minority communities are all about behavior. And so then I ask them, are you saying then that most of these women are being raped? They're like, no. Are you saying that they're being raped by white men? No. So then that does not fly. That is just an excuse. And we have to counter that with truth. Number two, abortion rights are a racial justice issue. Now this is from Professor Melissa Murray from New York University. She says, if the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and the 15th Amendment gave black men the opportunity to vote, the 14th Amendment was about imbuing these newly freed persons with the basic rights that whites had come to expect and had been that had been systematically denied enslaved people. That includes the right to family integrity, to not have your children or your spouse stolen or sold away from you, the right to raise your children to marry whom you want, and of course, she says, the right to your own body. So with the 14th Amendment, with the undoing of slavery, there was an attempt to expand and sow freedom into the Constitution that would later form the basis for so many civil rights, including abortion. Remember, did any of you read or hear any excerpts from Judge Alito's Roe v. Wade opinion? It's interesting because he actually goes in detail how this 
is inaccurate. There is no right to a constitution. There is no constitutional right to be specific to an abortion. That is not true. You will not find in the Constitution or in any of the amendments that you have a constitutional right to kill another human being. But that's what we're talking about. Now, what Roe v. Wade, that's why even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was very pro-choice, even she said that Roe v. Wade was bad law because essentially it created, it just created this right to an abortion but it was a bad use or an incorrect use of the law. Number three, CRT advocates or advocates for LGBT and abortion. Planned Parenthood has partnered with CRT advocates such as GLAAD to change their messaging in school curriculum to reflect that men can menstruate and get pregnant. No, this is true. This isn't even funny. Many television and commercials reflect that men are real women and can get pregnant. If transgender men can get pregnant, here's their logic, then they need access to abortion. Denying men access to abortion is denying their so-called constitutional rights, which is discrimination, and they can sue. So even when it comes to employers, what they're saying is, Employers have to advocate for abortion as well as LGBTQ rights. Number four, CRT, poverty, and abortion. This link. Let's look at this link. Economic statistics, according to The Economist, reflect that minority women are more likely to experience poverty, and forcing them to have a baby is forcing them into poverty. Hardship is a legitimate reason they believe then to have an abortion. Now, I want us to note, CRT advocates, they actually lobby for abortion using that as a talking point. But here's what's interesting to me. Blacks only make up 12% of the United States population, 12.5%, that's it. Yet, black women have nearly 40% of all abortions. In some states like Washington, D.C., New York, that number is close to 60 or even 70%. Black women have that many abortions. So if somehow whites are keeping women from having access to abortion, then how is it that they are making up a lot of the abortion numbers? A lot of times these are just red herrings, these are just excuses, but it's not true. But even if it were true, here's the question we need to ask. Is abortion justified when it comes to financial hardship? Do we kill a human being when they get expensive? That's what it essentially we're talking about. Do we kill off human beings if we feel we cannot afford them? No. And so that's why we have to consider this. So I do want to clarify in the remaining minutes, what is the pro-life position? Number one, in case there's any confusion, the pro-life position is very clear. And we use this as a syllogism. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Number two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, if both of those two premises are correct, we can logically conclude that therefore abortion is morally wrong. Now, high school students will say, okay, but miss, on the second premise, they'll maybe ask, but does abortion actually kill or they'll ask does it kill a human being very good question and we go to the science of embryology to actually answer that okay and that's why we ask what is the unborn what were you and i when we were inside mom either we were a human being or we were not but if we were not a human being then what kind of a human being were we what kind of a being were we if we were not a human being because think about it and from a just common sense perspective when a cat is pregnant, she's pregnant with what? When a dog is pregnant, she's pregnant with what? Okay, when a human is pregnant, she is pregnant with what? A human, right? How many of you have ever been to like a gender reveal party? Right, or you've seen those on, right? You've seen those all over social media where people are like, oh, I just want to be surprised. Listen, 
I've never met someone that's like, oh, I just want to be surprised because it could be a kitten or a puppy. No. We know that if someone's pregnant, they're pregnant with a human being. There's no getting around that. So what is the unborn? That's why we have to ask that question because that's the target of every single abortion. People don't want to answer that. They want to skip to the reason they want to have that abortion. But my friends, remember Horton here to who? No matter how small, a person's a person no matter how what? Yes. But, you see, we have an even greater story as believers. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that we're made in his image. In the image of God, we're made male and female. We know at the moment of conception, our maleness or our femaleness is present. At the moment of conception, we bear the image of the Most High God. And because we bear the image of God, we have inherent dignity and worth. And because we have inherent dignity and worth, it's wrong for another human being to intentionally kill someone else because they're expensive or because they're an inconvenience. The last thing is this. We can remember there's generally four differences that people will appeal to as justification for wanting to kill the unborn child. You can remember it as SLED, S-L-E-D. Differences of size, level of development, environment, or dependency, size. Do we really believe that taller people have more value? Because as you're going to see, yes, those differences exist inside the womb. But they also existed outside the womb. Therefore, they're not morally relevant to say that we could have been killed then, but not now, because those same differences still exist. Size. Who is this, gentlemen? Kevin Hart. Who is this? And who is this? Yao Mean. Do we really believe that Yao has more value because he's taller? Does he have more of a right to life? No. What about... Do NBA players have more value than, for example, little people with dwarfism? No. They all bear the image of God. Level of development. Do we really believe that because the unborn is less developed than a newborn baby, who is less developed than a toddler, who is less developed than her older brother and parents, would we ever kill a toddler because she hasn't gone through puberty? No. We would never kill a newborn baby because it can't walk. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing at that stage. But why do we discriminate against the unborn? Because they're at the stage where they're supposed to be, yet we're intolerant, to be honest, of that stage. Environment, where we're located. Since when does where we are change what we are? If we're not already human, you don't become human by coming down the birth canal and changing your address. Six to eight inches down the birth canal doesn't make you more human and more valuable. And last is dependency. Do we really believe that depending on someone else means that we can kill you? If that's the case, then what about people like Nick Vujicic, born without arms and legs? When he travels, he travels with a team of six to eight guys who take turns. When he's on a speaking tour, they take turns feeding him, bathing him. Does he have arms and hands to wipe himself after going to the bathroom? Can he dress himself, bathe himself? No. He's very dependent upon other people to help him, but no one would deprive him of basic human rights, at least I hope not. What about baby Lucas? What syndrome does he have? This is really important, my friends, and this is where we're ending. I hope we really mean that. We live in a society that uses words like equality, but we don't really mean it. Iceland 2017 bragged that they had cured their country of Down syndrome. They didn't cure their country of Down syndrome. They killed through abortion 99.5% of all of their Down syndrome babies. That's discrimination, my friends. In, 19, in 2017, the United States, we were only at around 67 to 73% of us doing the same thing. We aborted in the United States 67 to 73% in 2017. In 2020, that number rose that we're around 89 to 92% of aborting all Down syndrome babies. How many of you know someone with Down syndrome? How many of you know or have seen a baby recently with Down syndrome? It's very rare. Most of us can't even name five of them unless we work in a center that deals with them or maybe a clinic or something. Why do most of the people we know with Down syndrome are older? 
because our culture has become more intolerant of people with disabilities. He bears the image of God just as much as you and I do. So I hope that we will embrace a worldview that doesn't look at people as oppressors based on the color of their skin. I hope we don't look at people and assume the worst of them because of skin color or even because of sexuality that we will see that's a human being made in the image of God. We're called to pursue truth. And I certainly hope that when we see the unborn, that we advocate for their life because every single one of us were image bearers of the Most High God. With that, I will turn it back over. Thank you for your time. Goodness gracious, guys. Can you even believe that? Like all the speakers and all the transitions, everything we've had today, and we're like three minutes on schedule. <laughs> it's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? So <laughs> thank you, Janique. Thank you so very much. Appreciate it. Um, we'll take just about like a five to ten minute break and then come back and do our final Q&A for the day. And if you have questions, go to the Slido app and use the second, um, the second code to ask your questions.